Hello and welcome to The Corporate Activist. This week, we are re-releasing an episode from early in the first season of the podcast. It's a conversation with author and executive coach Edward Sullivan. We discuss the role of purpose in organizations and how CEOs can take the lead in corporate activism. I wanted to re-share this episode because it's one of my favorites, and we've got some new listeners who may have missed it. We're working on bringing you some great new conversations in the coming weeks, so please do stay tuned for future episodes. In the meantime, please enjoy this episode, CEO as Activist, with my guest, Edward Sullivan. Welcome to The Corporate Activist. I'm your host, Siri Kalsa. This week, we're really happy to welcome Edward Sullivan. Edward Sullivan is the CEO and managing partner at Velocity Coaching. His 20-year career as an executive coach and political consultant has taken him around the globe coaching and advising startup founders, Fortune 500 CEOs, and heads of state of foreign nations. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, Forbes, and others. He holds an MBA from the Wharton School and an MPA from the Harvard Kennedy School. And I will say that is where Edward and I met. I'm really happy to welcome Edward not only as a special guest, but also as a fellow classmate and dear friend. Edward, welcome to The Corporate Activist. So great to be here, Siri. Thanks. So Edward, I, I gave a little bit of background about your career, but I'd love to hear from you, like, you know, you're someone who works now day to day with CEOs and, and high level professionals about, you know, their work and how they're performing and how they can get better. And so I'd love to understand how you got here. Thanks, Siri. Um, you know, it's it's such an interesting question because sometimes I wonder how I got here as well. Um, when I look back at my career, it all makes sense to me, but I know that, you know, I did an interview once for one of the large consulting firms and somebody looked at my resume and she said, what is this? You know, like you, you've done a little bit of everything over the years, but the thread that I think ties my entire career together really is purpose. And I feel like I've been like swimming upstream towards my higher purpose for a very long time. I don't know if you know this about me, but I was almost a fine artist. I almost went into fine art photography in college. And I had this, this like, I call it the come to Jesus moment, even though I'm not really, really religious. But I had this moment in the dark room in college where I was, you know, working all night and trying to get this print um, right. Because back in the day, you actually went into dark rooms and you dealt with chemicals. It wasn't just all on a computer. And I had this realization that I was on a track where I would just be like expressing myself for the rest of my life as an artist. And I didn't really feel like I was going to be um, making the kind of contribution or being of service in the way that I felt really resonated with me. And now I know a lot of incredible artists in the world who make huge contributions to the conversation and to... Um, helping people understand themselves, but that really wasn't how I felt I wanted to be of service. I wanted to influence organizations. I wanted to influence people's lives. I wanted to influence policy. And uh, and I started off working in environmental politics, actually, in New Mexico. I think we originally met very quickly at some point in New Mexico. I don't, I don't remember where, when, but I know we ran in some of the same circles when you lived in New Mexico back in the day. And, um, and then my career went took a, a number of interesting turns, went from environmental politics to I worked for the Democratic Party. And then I was working internationally with James Carville 
advising candidates. And that's why I say presidents of foreign nations, because I didn't never had the opportunity to work in the Obama White House or anything, but I did work in a number of uh, administrations with different presidents around the world. And um, I always felt like we were working for democracy, working for human rights. But then I realized that it was the business leaders surrounding these political leaders who had even more influence. So coming out of working in politics, I got involved in business. I did a business degree at Wharton, and it was actually my classmates at Wharton who introduced me to the idea of being a coach. One of them said, Edward, you've been coaching me for a number of years already. I've just never paid you. So I'm wondering if we can have like a more formal relationship here. And at first I thought it was a little weird. Like I felt like a little quacky. You know, I didn't know what to think about this whole coaching thing. This is like 10 years ago now before it really became uh, a common occurrence for people to go into coaching. So it felt a little odd, um, the idea of it. But once I got into the coaching relationships and the coaching conversations, it felt so natural. And I felt like all the other work I had done, I'd been like, shoehorning myself into the role. I'd been like making something work because I wanted to be of service. And this was the first time I was actually kind of working from what they call the zone of genius. It was almost, I won't call it effortless because I do put a lot of uh, work into my craft, but it felt easier. It felt congruent with like who I am and how I wanted to live. Yeah. And I, I think I can say that as, as a friend of yours, that you like to have deep real genuine conversations <laughs> and that <laughs> that was always um you know i think something that you know you you never shied away from like you know uh getting in deep and 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 really spending time with people because i think that's an important part of having a genuine conversation is to actually really be very present and interested and one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on the podcast is because you and your co-founder have written a brilliant book called Leading with Heart and I uh, finished reading it um, just over the Christmas holiday and uh, found it really really great and very useful and I know that you you preface it around five conversations and I'd love for you to maybe touch on that, but the one that I really want to dig into is the final one, which talks about purpose, because that really relates to our work here as a corporate activist. But can you give us like a little briefing about what are these conversations and, you know, why are they important right now? Sure. Well, I mean, thank you for uh, the introduction to the book and, and thank you for reading it and for your feedback. Um, it's been really um really heartwarming to get feedback from friends, not just from, you know, strangers and readers around the world, but it's when like my friends and family contact me and say like, Hey, I read your book and it was actually a pretty good, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the core premise of the book is that we build better companies and ultimately we live richer lives when we have more emotionally connected conversations. Right. And there's this long held myth. We call it a myth. For a lot of people, it's a belief that we really have to have two lives. We have to be two different people, the work self and the home self, right? So in the first, in the introduction of the book, we talk about this work-life myth, right? Where we have to show up at work with, with a certain persona. We have to like exude executive presence. And we actually think that most people are wasting half their energy or more pretending to be someone they're not for the purposes of being professional and showing up in a certain acceptable way 
in the office. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, we're not uh, ad advocating that everyone go out there and just show up, you know, as like slovenly and sloppy and, you know, half drunk at the office, you know, it's not partying or something like that, but it's when we're, when we're more real and more connected, we're much more likely to solve problems faster. We're going to share information quicker. We're going to get to the heart of the matter and get down to what is ultimately the purpose of us doing this work, right? So the, the conversations that we explore in the book start a little bit in like the problem solving or like the, um, I would almost say like clearing the way questions, and then they get into what are we actually here to do? So the first question is like, what do you really need to be resourceful, to do your best work, right? If we're not helping each other get our needs met, we're all going to be operating from a place of deficiency, from a place of scarcity. And if we have that scarcity mindset, we're never going to be able to be fully creative, right? If we have that scarcity mindset, we're more likely to be behaving out of a place of fear. So the second question we explore is what fears are holding you back, right? If we can put on the table what's really holding us back, what the stories we tell ourselves, the story I might be telling myself about what you think about me or what they think, if we can put it all on the table and have those conversations, we're clearing the road for us to do some great work together, right? Uh, we next explore, what do you really want? Like, what are your deepest desires? Because if we can help each other get those desires met, we'll be really motivated to do great work together. Those desires can also derail us if they go too far. Uh, that desire to win can sometimes take people to the point of cheating, right? The desire to learn and like, uh, you know, be like curious and problem solving can lead people into navel gazing. So we want to make sure that we are helping each other get what we really want, but not letting, not taking it too far. So primarily you're working with CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, big, you know, tech startups, things like that. In terms of going through these conversations, how open and how willing do you find the people that you're working with to go through that kind of process? Like, I feel like there there is a bit of an opening for these kind of things that there hasn't been before where, you know, I don't know if it was COVID or it's, you know, just all the multitude of crises that we're all facing right now. But it's like we're all kind of at a point where we're ready to get real <laughs> about some of these things. Yeah. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to hear about, you know, your experience, just how you've seen this progression and and the openness for these kind of conversations and and the ability for people to to go at you know to work at this level. I mean, if you think about it, like there's been a move over the last twenty or thirty years towards bringing more vulnerability into home life and now into the workplace, right? Like all like the self help books of the seventies and eighties and kind of have led into like people just leading more. I think connected lives. There's Many more people are investing time in family counseling and like relationship um, therapy. And, and now suddenly they're realizing, oh, wait a minute, we're investing all this time and energy to like show up as our best selves at home, but we're still putting on these like cloaks and like these like suits. We're suiting up emotionally to go into the office. So in some ways I, I view it as like a natural progression, just as we've invested so much time to have deeper, richer, more honest conversations at home. Now people are realizing we can't do that home and not do it at work, right? And we're also seeing that like some of the best companies, the most innovative companies have been nurturing these kinds of cultures for a long time. Apple 
has had a very open conversation, a very creative uh, process um, at the top of its organization for a long time. Many other of the top firms, the ones who are providing the best results, it's because they have the most honest and rigorous feedback. I just had uh, lunch today with someone who used to work at Bridgewater, you know, one of, the, one of the top hedge funds, and they're known for having this incredibly transparent culture that um, they 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 say is an idea meritocracy, and the fundamental, um, like the the building blocks of that idea meritocracy is trust and openness. People have to feel like they can be their most honest, most vulnerable selves, so they can say, "I think that idea sucks," and here's why. Absolutely. I think it's not ubiquitous yet, but I think one of the things that your your book points out is that actually the companies who are taking the time to do this kind of work are actually having better results. And not not only financially, but in terms of having less turnover, having, you know, just greater workplace harmony. And and that makes a difference, right? Because we're spending you know, a good portion of our lives at work. So we can't, you know, be hating every minute of it. <laughs> no, no, we can't. I mean, if you think about it, we spend more time with our coworkers than we do with our families. It's crazy. <laughs> and because of that, we should be having rich, open, honest conversations, right? We call them heart-led companies. The heart-led companies are the ones where people feel safe to raise their hand and say, I don't agree. Heart-led companies are where people feel safe to say, there's a problem and I don't know how to solve it. Right. At these companies, there's faster flow of information. Uh, problems are surfaced and dealt with quicker. Um, people feel safer. They feel more loyal. They're, they uh, have higher retention. They stay longer. And ultimately, as you said, because of all of this, they end up having much better bottom line business outcomes. It's not about just feeling good. It's not about making all your employees feel seen and heard because, you know, you want to do that because it's the right thing. Not only is it the right thing, but it's also great for business. It's it's only sustainable if it is great for business, right? Because in the end, it all has to work together. Like we can have a really great workplace that doesn't make any money, and you know that will be fun for a little while, and then, <laughs> then that party will be over. <laughs> so let's dive into a little bit of your book and and of your work that deals with purpose. And there were a few things that I, I thought um, were really interesting that I'll, I'm just going to read to you back from your book. <laughs> One of them is that it's hard for an organization to have a sense of purpose if the leader does not have a purpose. People are not born with purpose. It's gained from life experiences. And we have to renew our sense of purpose at regular intervals and organizations and teams with a clear sense of purpose outperform those lacking purpose, which, you know, we, we just touched on a little bit. But here on, on the corporate activists and what we're trying to do is, you know, work with the idea of corporate activism. And a lot of that is based on a sense of purpose. And so can you just tell us a little bit, like, how is purpose found in an organization? And how how do you sort of put that in practice, say that you're, you know, you're making um, sneakers or you're, you know, you're selling book bags or something. Where does the purpose come into that? You know, for a lot of people, purpose has to do with service, right? It has to do with feeling like there is someone or some greater um, um, ideal 
that is being improved because of, of the work you're doing, right? Now, in some companies, like if you are like, you know, innovating in the dry cleaning space or like making, you know, sneakers or whatever, like it can feel hard, right? To like really connect to a sense of purpose. Um, a lot of people who work in like, let's say like the guy who runs the bodega, the convenience store here in my neighborhood in, in New York, you know, some people would say like, oh, what kind of purpose does that guy have? Well, I think his sense of purpose probably comes from all of the relationships he has with all the people in the neighborhood who he sees day after day, week after week, right? There's like this richest richness, there's a social context, you know, same thing with like the people who run the dry cleaner, right? Like living in New York, your living room is the neighborhood in a, in a sense. So like it's all these relationships that give people a certain sense of connectedness and a certain sense of purpose. Other companies where, you know, we make widgets, right? It might be harder, right? For that person to think, well, what, what are we actually doing here? What's the service that we're providing? But it's those leaders who step back and think, well, let me think of all the lives that are impacted or potentially improved because of either who we're employing or, you know, what product or service we're providing to the world, right? The companies that have a relationship and bring the stories of their end customers into the workplace are those that tend to have a greater sense of purpose. So you'll see a lot of companies that have these huge billboards in the office of photos of people around the world, their stories, like that's not just PR, right? It's not just feel good, you know, tell a good story, but we're actually like, you know, out there ruining the environment or something, right? The best companies are the ones that are actually helping people. They're living their values. You know, I wonder how, if I'm a CEO and, and I want to perhaps, you know, bring more purpose into my business, what are the, you know, what kind of steps do you take someone through when they're looking to do that? Because, you know, what we're trying to encourage are CEOs um, businesses to to take on this mantle of activism to really not just have like a corporate social responsibility program, but to actually proactively engage in political and social issues. And so, let's say you're a you're a CEO and you're thinking, you know, um, I really kind of care about this gun debate. Like, how do you help someone start having that conversation to really uncover what it is that they may want to engage with? We like to think of it in three steps, right? So every leader has to first get really clear and define their purpose. And we can talk about how to do that in a second. The second thing is they have to be very consistent in communicating their purpose to the organization so that people are hearing about it. What gets repeated gets remembered, right? So leaders who are up there talking about their values, talking about their pur purpose, uh, that's not just lip service, right? That's them actually trying to instill in the entire workforce you know, what we're here for, why, why are we doing this work? And then finally, they need to walk the talk, right? They have to actually put the purpose into action. Nothing erodes trust faster than saying one thing and doing something else. Yeah. And we know that, especially with, you know, the sort of millennial and Gen Z that they're watching, right? And they're recording and they're, <laughs> and they're posting. And so, you know, they're, they're demanding transparency and accountability and, you know, there, there's no getting around that. Right. And thank goodness. Right. Because, you know, growing up in the eighties and nineties, like I remember just so much, you know, horrible corporate 
executive behavior, right? And we still see that, but now there's more accountability. Yeah, yeah. And and I think there's consequences, right? You know, there there's real consequences. And, and we're seeing so many corporations um, wrestle with that right now, right? We, you know, we saw the Adidas thing with Kanye and took them a long time <laughs> to make a decision about that. Too long, I think everyone agrees. And and in the end, you know, I just saw a report saying that they're they're saying that the ending of that relationship costs them nearly a billion dollars. It would have cost them a lot more in the long term if they had not ended that relationship. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you know, and, and really it's really interesting to see how that's this role of the CEO is evolving, right? From someone who is, you know, solely responsible for profit, let's say, and and maybe to be a a figurehead and, you know, make all the investors happy to someone who, you know, who the world is looking to, you know, who their customers are looking to, their employees are looking to, other stakeholders are looking to. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the Edelman Trust Barometer, but they do uh, some really interesting polling. Um, they Their latest one uh, from, I think, uh, 2022 is out. And they they did a poll about trust and who do you trust? And what we see is that trust in governments is falling. Trust in the media is falling. Trust in businesses, trust in CEOs is rising. And one of their uh, studies, 81% of their respondents say that CEOs should be personally visible and talking about public policy. And that you know, basically they want to see companies engage more rather than less and that they're looking to corporations to to engage in public policy and to engage in social issues and that that is a trend that is, you know, on the rise, um, especially as we're seeing, you know, governments not functioning well, <laughs> you know, institutions not functioning well, the media in disarray. Um, people actually say that the, I think the second most trusted um, institution in all of their lives was their workplace, you know, and that is their, the leader of their workplace, their coworkers, but there, there is an expectation now on business leaders to, um, to be more than just the person who makes, you know, the company run. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit, because you're talking to CEOs every day, do you hear them being faced with these kind of challenges and, and how are they feeling about that? You know, is it something that they're comfortable with? Is it something that they feel like, yes, I want to jump in or do they feel, you know, a bit hesitant? Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious to know what you've, what you've observed. We talk about this every day, right? Because we're living in an age of like a lot of social strife. We're living in an age of, um, you know, there's, there's war in Ukraine, there's institutional racism, right? There's still mis misogyny and sexism. There's, you know, balloons flying over, over Alaska and Canada, right? It's like, there, there's a lot going on right now. And I think that that creates um, a lot of uncertainty. And it also creates a lot of looking towards leadership for signals, right? And a lot of these leaders don't really know what they can signal and what they can't, right? They don't, they're afraid of alienating anyone, right? So a number of clients, you know, have come to us and say like, what's my responsibility? What should I be saying about this issue or that issue, right? And like, cause I don't want to alienate anyone, right? I don't want to alienate 
some part of my employees who work in red states. I don't want to alienate some of my customers who live in red states, etc. And the end of the day is, what is important to you? What's important to your employee base, right? What do you really believe? And because it's the companies that take clear stands and are really clear about what they stand for, what they will accept, what they're behind, what they're not behind. They're the ones that long-term have higher employee retention and, and more loyal customer bases as well, right? It's the companies that are always hedging that, you know, don't want to say anything, don't want to offend, you know, over time, I think that they, they lose that loyalty, right? They lose the, the, the enthusiasm in their employee base, right? Because what is enthusiasm? What, what really gets people motivated? It's believing in something, right? It's not, oh, I got my annual bonus. It's not, oh, um, you know, I, I, I really love uh, the, the, the colors of my cubicle. You know, it's, we're doing cool work and we believe in something. So, you know, the, 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 the leaders who are out there taking that risk and taking a clear stand, taking a stance, right? They're the ones who long-term develop much greater loyalty, both in their customers and their employees. Yeah. And, and that loyalty is, is based on everyone feeling purpose, right? So it's, it's everyone being able to take a certain amount of pride and a certain amount of connection in their work, right? So that they they have a story to tell as well. It's not just, you know, a, a CEO who's saying, well, I'm helping this person and this person, but, you know, it's a story that everyone can tell and everyone can share with their own families and with their own, you know, throughout the supply chain. I mean, that's, you know, that's a bit of the idea that there's a, a ripple effect. Right, because then, then it's suddenly no longer just a job, you know? Like people are dying for more meaning in their lives, right? And if they can't find that meaning at home, they're going to try to find that meaning at work. And I think, you know, one of the other important things, and, and you touch on this in your book at the beginning, is knowing your values, right? Because you don't have to be everything to everyone. When a company understands their values and they understand the things that matter to them and to their stakeholders, and they're willing to engage proactively and reactively on those topics, that's super effective. But when they try to put a statement out about everything that goes on and, and they try to engage a little bit here and a little bit there and everything, you know, that's less effective, right? Maybe you could talk a little bit about the role of values and how does someone know their values? How do they know what's important to them? So with, um, with leaders we work with, and sometimes we do this exercise with um, large teams as well, we ask people to close their eyes and think of one of the peak experiences of their life. Where were you? Who were you with? What did it smell like? What were you doing? Right. And then share the story with the room. And what ends up happening is these peak ex in these peak experiences, people often tell you implicitly what their values are. They might tell you a story of walking alone on a beach at sunset and really feeling like the wind on my face. And I was like communing with nature. It's like, okay, well, this person values freedom and solitude and spirituality. You know, some people might say like, oh, it was actually, you know, peak experience last week was sitting with my family and hearing the crackle of the fire, reading a book to my children. Okay, well, that person really values family values, cozy, warm, like whatever it is, like we can, we can help people unpack their own values by helping them relive 
these experiences that were most touching and fulfilling to them. Not just most exciting. It's not like, oh, I was once on a, on a roller coaster. I jumped out of a plane. That was amazing. But it's like, what really left you feeling like resonant and connected and fulfilled, right? And what often ends up happening is we'll do this exercise with people and we'll find, that's interesting. There's like two or three values that most people in this room share, but we've never expressed. And sometimes it is a value of being of service. It's a value of, you know, transparency, integrity, and trust, you know, these kinds of things. And suddenly we see like, okay, we already, we, we have commonly shared values that were just going unexpressed, right? As opposed to kind of like these cheap corporate values that, you know, we, we made with a PR firm a couple of years ago. And it's like, you know, customer first and this and that, you know, it's like, let's get down into like, who are we as people? What are our values? Because as an organization, corporate values really should be a reflection of our personal values. And that's one of the key points that that we're trying to sort of um, uncover is, you know, when you're in a diverse workplace, which we're all hoping to to have, there there are diverse values. So I imagine it's it can be quite difficult to find a shared set of values that are both somehow um, implicit in, in terms of a personal sense, but also can be explicit um, for the corporation. And we can say that this is what we believe in as a corporation that everyone, you know, can get behind. And, you know, and I think, could you work in a place where you don't agree with the values of the company? You know, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe if you, if you like saw yourself as, you know, simply a cog in the, in the machine, you know, I think unfortunately a lot of people do work in places where they don't agree with the values of the company and they do it because they feel like they don't have any other options. You know, maybe in some parts of the world, some parts of the country, they don't have many other options. Right. But the good news is with, you know, the post COVID era, a lot more people have a lot more flexibility in terms of being digital nomads, working remotely. So hopefully there's more access to more work with meaning now. Yeah. And, you know, I think, you know, that's what we're hoping with the with this idea of corporate activism um, as a movement that really anyone with a platform can use that. You know, another sort of gold gold star I would give to Ben and Jerry's, you know, they're they're a company, you know, I mean, now it's a bit more complicated because of Unilever, but <laughs> but you know, they have from the beginning had a set of values and, and they're working, you know, they work on those things proactively. And, you know, we also see that they, you know, take a stance on things when they need to. And so, you know, it, it's it's an exciting time to see corporations um, start engaging this way and feel having the confidence to do that. The key to doing it well is first understanding your values, right? And, and being really clear about those. Yeah. And it's the companies, it's the leaders who really get out front with their values, we feel like we honor the most as well. It's like we honor the courage, right? We honor the clarity. And it doesn't just like feel good buying the shirt, but it feels good buying the shirt. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not about the product anymore. It's about the entire experience. You know, at the end of the day, brands are like the new tribes, right? It's like who we feel allegiance and alignment with. And brands that are really clear about their values give us something to kind of hang our hearts on as opposed to, oh, I really, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I align with that value or with that, that brand because it represents luxury. It represents opulence. Like, 
people really want to align with brands that have values that are a little bit closer to home now. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we're all being careful about, you know, we understand that our our money is is a, a vote, right? Like our money is a way to to show where we things that we support, um, you know, not just going to good causes, but to invest in brands that, you know, that make a difference and that we can feel good about because, um, you know, we don't want to just be sort of wild consumers where we're, <laughs> we're just, you know, buying anything. But I think we can start sort of wrapping up the conversation, but I'd love to hear about anyone else, um, any other brands or companies that you think are doing really, you know, I know that you're working with some startups and things like that. And I'd love to hear anyone else that you think is doing a really great job that we should all keep an eye on. You know, I'm lucky enough to work with a couple CEOs who are very, very, I think, civic minded and like um, just just incredibly um, thoughtful um, integrity-minded leaders. Um, one of my longest-standing clients is the CEO of Bombas, the sock company. We write about Bombas for the chapter of the book, right? Not only the best socks, but also one of the best corporate citizens. They give one pair of socks or one one unit, one um, art item of clothing, because they also make uh, tees and underwear, um, to homeless shelters for everyone they sell. The company was founded uh, because um, Dave Heath, the founder, was like going over some reports and realized that socks were the number one most re- requested item in homeless shelters. He was like, you know, looked up, does anyone donate gobs of socks to homeless shelters? And apparently no one did. So he was like, all right, I'll start a company to do that, right? We also do a lot of work with uh, Hinge, the dating app, right? And Justin McLeod, the, um, uh, the CEO and founder there, what a principled individual, right? He wrote an entire book for internal use of the the values and principles uh, that they use to guide their work at Hinge. He calls them the ACE values, authenticity, courage, and empathy, right? And every employee gets measured every quarter on how well they're doing living those values. So it's not just about work output, it's also about heart output. That was pretty cool. And there's, you know, there's dozens more like that. I mean, the good news is, um, with it being relatively easier now, as opposed to any other time in history to start a company, more people are starting companies with very clear values. And they're being, I think, very outward about those values. They're taking much clearer stances now than at any other time. Well, that is what we like to see. <laughs> so Edward, I, I really appreciate this. We're going to wrap up with two extra questions, which I have not prepped you for. So we'll see how they go. What I like to just uh, ask everyone is first, um, is there a book, a podcast, um, something that you've um, read lately that that you would recommend that you would you think other people should take a look at? Let's see. So um, what do I have? What are the books I've got right here? Um, you know what? Uh, I got a gift uh, of a book from my my business partner recently called The Daily Stoic, which is a collection of um, Stoic wisdom from the uh, the, uh, the Greeks, and um, it's by Ryan Holiday. And I've just been reading, you know, one page of that every morning, and it's just a great way of like orienting what my thoughts for the day, being of service, temperance, integrity, and other Stoic values. Really wonderful. All right. And the the second question is, um, we have mentioned a few sort of outstanding uh, brands and and things that we admire, but 
I like to give the guests a chance to give a shout out to, you know, anyone they think is actually, you know, just a, a stellar performer that, you know, whether it's a place you like to buy your shoes or, you know, a, a shirt that or, or you know, a, an ice cream you like, anything that, you know, you think that someone is doing a great job that you'd love to just uh, give a little shout out to. You know, I'll, I'll give a shout out to the boots I'm wearing right now, which um, it's a company called RM Williams out of Australia. They've been making boots by hand there in Australia for, I don't know, a hundred years. And um, they just, they just are so well-made. And if you take care of them, they last forever. And they're, they're like not cheap, but I think they are very much worth the price because they last 10 to 20 times longer than cheap shoes you could buy for 50 bucks. And I think that, you know, when we think about purchasing with integrity, we should also be thinking about the longevity of the products we buy. And it's so easy to think, oh, you know, shoes should cost, you know, $80 or $150. Well, guess what? Some shoes, they cost $500 for a reason because they're made to last 25 years, right? And they actually do if you take care of them. If you look at, if you look at historically, like back in like the early 1900s, people had two pairs of shoes, maybe three, because they were such a large percentage of their income, right? And today, what we think of as like really high-end luxury prices were actually like common prices in terms of the cost of living um, back then. But we just have been exposed to such the cheapening and cheapening and cheapening of products over time. We basically buy everything that's disposable. So I would say, look for brands that are made very well. You'll have them for a long time and uh, they're very much worth the price. Yeah. And, and, you know, supporting um, craftspeople and artisans, which is uh, something we've talked about in, in the previous episodes, but, you know, the, the people doing that work are really skilled and, you know, that's one of the reasons that, you know, they cost so much, but um, the work that they do is, is usually something that, has been handed down generation to generation and, and, uh, you know, in itself is, is, you know, an art form. Edward, you've been an amazing guest. I really appreciate it. I will once again, um, plug your book, um, leading with heart and Edward, people can follow you on Twitter, I imagine, and places like that. Yeah. They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Edward L. Sullivan. And they can learn more about our coaching work and the book at velocitycoaching.com. You have been a star. I'm very, very grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Siri. 